Welcome to the Mental Health Business Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margot Jaco. Are you a clinician looking to find the balance between providing compassionate client care and business agility? This show will help with things you need to know to start or grow your practice and better serve your clients. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, this is Dr. Margot Jaco. On today's episode, we'll be discussing legal issues for mental health professionals with a real expert in the field. Today's guest is our friend and attorney, Jonathan. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello, I really appreciate being invited, and I'm looking forward to uh, interacting with you, and hopefully I can help in any way with your audience. Well, that's wonderful. Well, you've sure helped us a lot. So let me tell them a little bit about you. Jonathan is obviously an attorney, and he's a managing partner at Nye Law Group. He's been practicing law since 1992, so, you know, a little while. Jonathan is what everyone who wants a divorce is looking for, the perfect hybrid of a pit bull and a teddy bear. I think that's pretty accurate, actually. With over 22 years of family law and mental health expertise, Jonathan is a trial lawyer who's been especially successful in complex divorces with child custody disputes, high asset cases, post-decree modifications, and mental health issues. He's a real out-of-the-box thinker with the philosophy we can do this the easy way or we can do it hard way. Jonathan has proven that he's able to dominate the most complex cases with superior knowledge of law and procedure. His reputation and skills have earned him the title of super lawyer in 2015. And he was recently featured in Chicago Magazine. He's one of the few attorneys in Illinois with a concentration in mental health law. So Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you again. Jonathan, I originally found you because I had started out working with your mother. Um, how many years ago was that event? Because she was retired. My mom's been retired for about seven years. She passed away a year ago, October. But she started, she sat for the bar the year I was born. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So that uh, I'm 58, so it was a long time ago. Yeah, this is literally in your blood. Uh, I'm both of my grandfather's. Uh, both of my parents. Uh, I'm an attorney, and my son starts law school next fall. Oh, good for him. Yeah, you have two grown children, right? That's right. Yeah, oh, wonderful. That's great. Well, congratulations on that. So, Jonathan, obviously, you know, you and I have had a lot of interactions with each other, and I love the fact that you have this consultation service where we pay a fee each year, and I can pick up the phone. A very reasonable fee, Mike. A very, for especially for the quality, given my quantity, uh, it's a very reasonable fee to pick up the phone and have you literally on. Well, I guess there's no such thing as speed dial anymore. Everybody's on speed dial, but but I have you available, and it's a wonderful service. So I really suggest anybody who needs attorneys uh, guidance, please look at this. We will make sure you can get this information so that you too can call Jonathan pick his brain in the middle of Saturday afternoon. Jonathan, you know, so a lot obviously is going on right now with COVID. People are really concerned about things like the HIPAA laws. I mean, there's just so many things to be thinking about in addition to what we typically need to think about. So if you were to pick the top three things that you think a mental health practitioner really needs to be aware of, and we can focus on COVID in a minute, but just generally, the top three things a mental health practitioner needs to think about. What are those things? Well, first is my phone number. But other than that, 
I would agree. I apologize. Uh, my kids say all of my jokes have expired. I, I love well, first of all, most confidentiality matters can be resolved using a very um, well-drafted release form, which I have available on my website, uh, www.nylawyer.com. That's my last name, Nye, the word lawyer.com. It's available free of charge. And I actually have a video available that you can click on on my website that is a, it was a seminar I did for EPA, EAPA. And I took that portion of my seminar dealing with uh, accurately using release forms. And so you can go through the video and really learn how the release form can be used. It's a great resource. That's number one. Number two is all of your computers, your devices, your smart devices, tablets, iPads and the like should all be encrypted. Under HIPAA, if there is a breach, you can be fined literally out of existence. I've, I've heard tell of small offices being uh, fined by the Department of Health and Human Services hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and most practitioners, uh, even a fraction of that would literally put them out of business. To encrypt all of your computers, whether it's a desktop that you have in your office, whether it's on a laptop that you carry around with you, whether it's an iPad or a smartphone, uh, whether it's an Android or it's a, a um, an Apple product, um, it, it's literally a flip of a switch as long as you've got the most up-to-date software to encrypt your devices is uh, it's it's free or close to free and and easy. And when you encrypt, encrypt the entire hard drive on your devices, not just a particular segment of the hard drive. And that way, if your computer is stolen, it's lost, you wipe it out and you give it to your nephew because you got a new one. The, that is a safe harbor for, um, for HIPAA. If your device is encrypted and it falls into the wrong hands, you do not need to worry. So that's number two. Number three, I think develop a relationship with a group of other mental health providers so that you have the ability to reach out, whether that's through you, Margot, through you're a member of the ICA or IPA or uh, NASW or Illinois, 10 or 12 in the, in Illinois that are significant uh, associations. They have listservs that you can reach out to have a, a core group of therapists you can consult with, not just people with your levels of experience or areas of concentration. Because when a patient comes into your office, you never know what's going to present. And if somebody comes in and they are a trauma victim and you don't have a lot of trauma experience, you may have the wherewithal to provide for them, but you want to make sure that you are doing the right thing for the patient. That Those are the three things I would recommend. Uh, I'm going to add very briefly, uh, HIPAA is not just maintaining confidentiality. It is making the, the client records available. If there's a re request for a disclosure, it must be completed within 30 days or declined within 30 days. And if it's declined, it has to be for a reasonable reason. If you are unable to provide copies of the records in a clinically appropriate period of time, then you can be fined by the Department of Health and Human Services. And then I always want to remind everyone, 
HIPAA is a minimum level of confidentiality throughout all of the United States and territories. It's the same minimum set of rules for Guam as it is for Washington, D.C., as it is for Illinois. Illinois confidentiality law with regard to mental health services is significantly more restrictive than HIPAA. And Illinois law, under pursuant to HIPAA, if state law is more restrictive than the, the HIPAA requirements, then the state law takes precedent over the HIPAA requirements. So in Illinois, you not only have to maintain HIPAA compliance, but you have to also be able to maintain your records and information in a, in a way that is even more restrictive than HIPAA under the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act. And incidentally, my release of information form complies with both HIPAA and the Illinois Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act. Your um, listeners should feel comfortable saying that this is my approved release and I am authorized to disclose with an accurately filled out release form. Now, my release form, and mind you, I give it away free. Anybody can come and take it. Give it to your friends, your neighbors, your relatives. Christmas is coming up soon. Right. My release form is a two-page document. The first page is the release. The second page is a checklist that actually has my letterhead on it. And that checklist is the checklist that my office will review every release that comes into our office. We look at that checklist. My paralegal, who, who would take that intake of that document, would compare it to that checklist. Then they would send it to me, and I would compare it with the checklist, always two eyes on every document. So I included as page two of my release form. So if you disseminate the release form for patients or third parties to fill out, to authorize you to communicate with third parties, then under those circumstances, also give them that second page and remind them, after you've filled it out, look at the checklist, compare the release to the checklist. If all of the checks have been complied with, then you're pretty sure that the release is compliant with all the requirements of state and federal law. And so my job, as I see it, is not just to be a lawyer, to be there to take your money when you need it, but to be able to give you the resources so that you can do it yourself. So if you get into trouble or there is a problem or you feel you need support, you can reach out to me. And I have to say, in almost 30 years of doing this, I've never had someone call me first and then get into trouble. I've had lots of people get into trouble and then call me to hopefully get them out. Right, right, right. Well, yes, let's try to do that the other way around. And that is great that you have that on your website. We've had you check all of our forms, all of our contacts. It's well worth every cent for sure. Uh, Because again, it's trying to stay on the side of not getting in trouble. So you mentioned records, Jonathan, and I'll tell you, this ends up being, I don't want to say the bane of my existence. That's probably a little hyperbolic, but you know, as a practice owner, we have lots of conversations about what is required to be in people's records, what is required to be in the notes so that they don't get audited, or if they do, they don't get themselves in trouble. You know, subpoenas, they feel people, therapists feel very protective of people's confidentiality. They don't want to release the records. They don't think it's anybody's business. Can they release it to the insurance companies? I mean, we have these conversations frequently. I know other practice owners, this is a frequent topic of conversation. So what would you suggest in terms of people's records in general? You know, th- that's a question that is 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 beyond my pay grade, but I, I, but I can I can help a little bit. 
originally records were, let's say, prior to 1975 or so, records were intended to remind the therapist of what happened the prior week or the prior session and to maintain a continuity of care. Prior to that, practitioners were taught that less is more. Less documentation means less disclosure. There were very few rights with regard to patient confidentiality back then. And somewhere around 1977, and I'll throw a pitch for my mom, she and Dr. Jerome Beegler and a few select other uh, mental health providers got together and actually wrote the law, the Illinois Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act. And it has been modified and updated uh, for the last 35 or so years. And once the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act came into being, then for the first time, there was some uh, statutory privilege that protected disclosures and allowed disclosures only under certain circumstances. Um, and so from plus or minus 1980 forward, they began educating mental health providers that more is more. It wasn't until the 60s when uh, mental health pro providers, psychologists, social workers, counselors, and the like, began actually being able to bill for their services. Prior to that, it was unusual to get insurance companies to cover that kind of mystical healthcare provision. Right, exactly. And, you know, as it was with things like uh, physical therapy and uh, occupational therapy, a lot of that was considered to be smoke and mirrors until it became, until they were uh, able to substantiate it with research to show that it was, in fact, efficacious. Once the services, mental health services, really started being reimbursed by insurance companies, then they had to modify and create some, some protections about what could be used for the purposes of insurance. So it went from a therapist just keeping in mind what it was they were doing so they'd be reminded session to session to being able to provide enough information for an insurance company to look at the diagnosis, the services provided, the treatment plan, and the progress that a patient has. Because most insurance companies will not pay for um, for uh, mental health services that are not r resulting in an increase in behavioral well-being. So if they're not getting better, as it were, then they won't pay for it. So you have to prove, they call it medical necessity. There's nothing medical about the work that a psychologist, a social worker, a, a counselor, a marriage and family therapist and the like would do, but they still call it medical, whether it medically necessary. And then they would take that data and use that data in determining whether or not uh, medical necessity has been achieved. And then and only then would they reimburse. And my experience is, is that to a great extent, that is the excuse that many insurance companies have for non-payment, that there isn't sufficient documentation. So the reality is, is every insurance company is looking for something different. They're all looking for a diagnosis. They're all looking for symptomatology that supports the diagnosis. They're looking for a treatment plan that is reasonably designed to manage or to assist in the diminution or reduction of that symptomatology. And they're looking for ongoing checks and balances as to whether or not uh, the, the patient is doing better and getting better. And then the 
Department of Financial and Professional Regulations, you're licensing people. The people that grant licensed clinical professional counselor, licensed clinical social worker, licensed psych, uh, clinical psychologist, and the, the minority license that come with all of them, uh, they look, they don't have a provision in the statute that is, that establishes the profession within the state of Illinois. They don't define what notes are necessary. What they do is they look into and identify criteria under which you can be disciplined. And the catch-all is unprofessional conduct. It is determined that failure to maintain a reasonable note, and I'm using the words notes because it's generic, process notes, progress notes. The concept of personal notes is a specifically defined legal term, or maybe if you'll invite me back, I can explain some of those definitions, but don't use the word personal notes unless you know what it means. Process notes, progress notes, I would prefer. What to have in them, how to handle them, how to maintain them. If you don't have them, then that is unprofessional conduct. And to be honest with you, if you maintain your records, whether it's in paper, they are, the, the federal government requires to be HIPAA compliant going forward, and they keep moving back the date of compliance, but soon you will be required to maintain electronic records. The reality is not to maintain electronic records, I think, is a breach of the standard of care. I think that uh, mental health providers have to have electronic medical records. Why? Because I've had cases where mental health providers have had a hard drive with a laptop with all of their patient notes, and the hard drive fails. And there isn't a, a protected HIPAA-compliant backup. And so they are not able to produce those records when the patient wants them or when the insurance company wants them. Mm-hmm. When the insurance company wants them and they don't get them, that's okay. The therapist just doesn't get paid. You guys don't need to get paid. You're all rich, right? Right, of course. But the important part is, is if you don't have records and the department finds out for whatever reason that they can count that against you and they can discipline you for it. Now, it also depends on the circumstance. I once had a client that was, there was a complaint through the department that his records for 2012 and 2013 were lost because of a laptop failure. And then he fixed it and had a a backup to a hard drive that he kept in his office and it was backing up every day. So he thought, but for some reason, the backup didn't back up and he had another hard drive failure and he didn't have a backup. So it's my advice with regard to records that you get a backup in the cloud in a HIPAA compliant place. Now, I know Dropbox has a HIPAA compliant version. You have to pay for it, of course. I believe Google has a a HIPAA compliant uh, drive. I know there are several others. I know if you're using an electronic medical record system, that already backs up to the cloud. So there is redundancy there. So if their server goes down or there's a fire or something, it's also somewhere else in an encrypted safe environment. But uh, if you don't have that under under uh, the access requirements of HIPAA, you can be fined. And I'm telling you, you can truly be fined out of existence. Oh, gosh, boy, I'll tell you, every time you say that, Jonathan, even though we have an electronic system and you know, we're doing the things that you're, you're talking about. Just the thought of being fined out of existence just makes me makes me blanch every time. So, there, I mean, it's an important thing. It's certainly that, but more importantly, the, if the patient's records are unavailable and you something, God forbid, happens to you, 
that patient is put in a position where they are unable to get sufficient background so that a new therapist coming in in some sort of an emergency cannot adequately come up to speed and provide that patient with the services that they deserve. Yeah, right, right. So it's it's both to protect us, but of course, as always, to protect the patient. So I'll tell you another question that I get fairly frequently is, what else can really get people in trouble? You know, confidentiality is number one. It's so easy to slip. To talk with someone on the phone as you're walking down the, the, in the mall, you're walking from, you know, uh, one store to another store or in the grocery store and you get a call from somebody and you say, Oh my goodness, Mr. Jones is in the office again. My God. Okay. Well, you know, uh, get him in right away or, or certify him and get him into the hospital. Well, what if Mr. Jones, if anybody hears that, that's a breach. There are, that's, that's number one. Confidentiality is the easiest way to get into trouble. Number two is really understanding boundaries. Understanding that your patient is your patient. And even if you've got a patient who has social issues, who really needs a mother, a father, uh, a friend, that that is not your requirement. That is not what you're there for. You, you need to make sure that you maintain appropriate boundaries. Um, certainly any physical connection with a patient that is not therapeutic in a way that is consistent with what the professions would identify as sufficient. Uh, certainly, absolutely. If you feel that you're having a romantic feelings towards a client, get immediately get supervision. Immediately uh, consult with some mental health providers. Immediately get yourself into therapy. Because if you don't manage that appropriately, immediately, even without reaching out, even without succumbing to those urges, you are violating your obligation as a professional because as soon as that the counter-transference thing becomes a problem for you, at that point, you are no longer able to be a meaningful therapist. So you need to reach out, get services from other professionals, confirm that it's okay for you to continue. If not, you have to terminate. And my mother told me a long time ago, merely because you have a client doesn't mean that you are sentenced to them, as in 10 to 20 years. I like that. That's good. That's good. Uh, I, and there's one more thing. If you don't mind, I'm going to quote my sister, who is the only viable child my mother had. She's a doctor. She, uh, she told me that in medical school, they teach you that it's the patient that has the problem. And mental health providers are because the positive transference phenomenon makes you such a good therapist, it is very hard for therapists to find that line that they not cross because if you allow your your wish, your need, your wants to support your patients to cloud how it is you proceed in your process, the patient loses and you lose. And you may think, well, I'll take the chance for this one patient because this patient needs you. And invariably, there'll be borderline stuff that comes out of that from the patient. And you end up the victim. You're the, you're the rescuer. You end up the victim. And the Department of Financial Professional Regulations acknowledges these things happen. And if you don't manage it appropriately, 
you very well may lose your license. Yeah, that's, I think that's such sound advice, Jonathan. And it's, it's so tricky for those reasons exactly. These can be very intense relationships. And most therapists, I think, are good people. They're well-intentioned. But you can't lend people money. You can't give them rides. You can't loan them a car. You know, you can't help them find housing in your, you know, neighbor, you know, carriage house or whatever. I mean, you know, there's all these things. Of course, awful things befall people, but we can't be the person who jumps in and is going to rescue them. We have to keep that clear. So I'm really glad you brought that up. You know, and you talk about not being sentenced to someone. I think therapists don't know how when to terminate therapy. Oh, you're right on, Margo. Uh, you know, you have an obligation when you feel that your process is not helping that patient. You have an obligation when your feelings towards that patient are not conducive to a positive relationship. And what do I mean by that? We've all had clients we don't like. I mean, you don't like, some people are just not likable people. Yeah, I don't have your favorite client, but you do sometimes have people that you don't like. I get that. You, you are absolutely among my favorite clients. <laughs> and, and, and you knew that because I tell you that. Exactly. But, but, but I will also let you know that we all know that there are clients that, whether it's pathological or not, you just plain don't like. Right. And as soon as you identify that, you are so much better off understanding that as soon as you feel that way, that is going to affect your ability to meaningfully provide services to that patient. And you should terminate then. And then I have people that say, oh, I know my client is borderline and I just know that they're going to come after me. So I'm not going to terminate with them because I don't want to have to worry about what they're going to do. And my response is always, eventually, Short of you dying, you're going to have to terminate. And whether they, you terminate them or they decide that you said or did something that they didn't like. And why should you give them 22 years of, of complaints that they can take to the Department of Financial Profe Professional Regulations when on your fourth session you recognize that they were dangerous? If you get rid of them after four sessions, I know you get rid of them, and then another one of my clients has to pick them up. But right. but the reality is, is that if you feel that you cannot meaningfully provide services in spite of your feelings for that patient or feelings against that patient, under those circumstances, you are duty bound to terminate. Right. Well, and we're not doing them any favors. I mean, that's really what I tell my staff is we're not doing them any favors. I actually had to do this recently for the first time in my career where I had to terminate someone who really wasn't ready and who did not uh, want to be terminated. And I just didn't feel anymore that I was doing the best job for them. I didn't think individual one-on-one -on -one therapy for this individual was ultimately the best choice. And, you know, it was hard to do. The thing that we don't own is we don't want to feel like bad people. Uh, but I couldn't allow myself have that be the reason that I didn't make the appropriate recommendation because that actually made me a better therapist. Absolutely. Stuck with them forever through thick and thin, no matter what, but then I made what felt like the appropriate referral. And it was really hard to do. But, you know, I think both from an ethical perspective and probably down the road from a legal perspective, 
It's it's the right thing to do. The the language I tend to like to use is, and it, you can use it introspectively. You can use it to communicate to the patient. You can use it with releases to communicate to a subsequent uh, provider. Is that the patient required a level of services that I could not provide them, and that I believe that to refer that patient to someone or an agency, whether it's a wraparound services, you may need someone who's got, who has uh, psychopharmacology requirements, psychological requirements, maybe has some, some core social work, housing and, and resource uh, acquisition kind of issues, and they can wrap them around and kind of as a community help them. Uh, that may be the type of person that needs a different kind of a, of a modality and, and entity. And right. I always say, use the magic words. Uh, that I feel that this other agency or individual will be uh, better able to provide you with a level of services appropriate to your needs as they are now. There you go. Yeah. And we need to know the scope of care that our organization can actually provide. Right. And we're a private practice. If somebody else is a social service agency, a community mental health center, you need to make sure that you're sending the client to the right agency and it doesn't make you a bad guy. And I will give you this input. I, I, I tend to not like the, the use of the term referral because it tends to suggest that you are uh, guaranteeing the quality of the services that they will receive. Oh, I like using that this agency or individual may be able to provide you with a level of services appropriate to your needs. I've heard good things about them. So you're not giving opinion, you're giving communication, and you're doing it in, 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 with an interest uh, of, of providing the patient with the, the care that they need. Uh, there is one more thing I'd like to, to mention, and it, you know, it's through the process sometimes I remember that uh, a lot of mental health providers communicate with um, outsiders, third parties, parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents, lawyers, other healthcare providers under certain circumstances with an oral release. And I tell people, if you've got an oral release, you run to your fax machine and you fax it to me. If you can't put it into a fax machine and send it to me, it doesn't <laughs> exist. Exactly. And unless there is an emergency, you don't disclose. Now, if you get a subpoena, it, honestly, I've been doing this almost 30 years. I think three or four times in all of that time, have I actually seen a subpoena that has been sent by some of the best lawyers in the country that was correctly issued pursuant to the Illinois law. And I have to say, just a few months ago, I had a, a, a correctly provided subpoena, and I reviewed it, and I had to pick up the phone, and I felt so good about it, and I had to talk to this lawyer and say, counsel, this was great. It's very seldom that I see uh, a subpoena that's done the right way. You did it exactly the right way. And I really, really appreciate that you did a good job. People only hear bad things. They don't hear good things. And I wanted to give you some input. And he says, doesn't my voice sound familiar? You, you kicked me in the rear end about six years ago. And I learned back then how to do it right. And he's been doing it right ever since. So hopefully the lawyers will get it right. But you have to remember, just because they have a JD at the end of their, their name doesn't mean they are G-O-D. Yeah, right. That's 
Exactly. That's perfect. So, Jonathan, I'll tell you, we always send subpoenas your way. Uh, have you take a look at them because, you know, the clerk might go up to or an attorney might go up to the clerk and have a clerk sign the subpoena. So we always make sure that it is a valid subpoena that's signed by the appropriate person who correctly is a judge. And well, it doesn't necessarily, there could be a court order, there could be a release, the certain specific language has to be on a subpoena. And either one of those deficiencies could result in, a, in, in an illegal subpoena. And just because you get a subpoena doesn't mean that you are allowed to comply. And if you get an illegal subpoena and you comply with it, you can be liable for wrongful disclosure. You can be sued for malpractice. And so if you get a subpoena, Find out if it's legal or not. Give it to a lawyer. There are only a few of us that do this kind of work. If you give it to your brother-in-law who's a lawyer, a personal injury lawyer, that brother-in-law doesn't know mental health care. Uh, they don't know the specific required laws of a subpoena in a mental health case. Uh, I, I know some, I've had experience with health care attorneys who deal with physical health care issues. They understand HIPAA but they don't know the nuances of the Illinois Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act and the 200 or so cases that have been uh, been ruled on over the last 20 or 30 years. And, and they don't know what the real rules are. And they may be telling you that it works, but it's wrong. I, I've, there are a couple of, of uh, insurance companies who have lawyers on staff. They are very, there are very, there are none that I'm aware of that have lawyers in Illinois who can give advice. So the therapist will call the lawyer for their insurance company and they'll talk to them and the lawyer from the insurance company says, oh yeah, it's a subpoena, you're okay, go ahead and, and comply. And, and I've actually had situations where a uh, an insurance company for a mental health provider. I won't tell what profession. Mm. I won't tell what insurance company. I won't tell what lawyer. Okay. Has actually advised mental health providers to comply with an illegal subpoena in violation of the Confidentiality Act. And then afterwards, when they got sued, they took the position that they shouldn't have to defend them because they didn't adequately comply with the statute. They, in other words, they took the advice of the insurance company, violated the statute, and then the insurance company didn't want to defend them. Oh, my God. Right. So Thank God that particular insurance company started giving my name, which I very much appreciate. So I want to let you know that there are some good insurance companies out there doing the right thing. Yes. Highly recommend when you get a subpoena. Anyone who's listening, please run a past an attorney. Jonathan knows how to look at things. It would be a good resource. So there's so much to talk about, Jonathan, and I, I'd love to have you back. But before we end for today, can you just speak a little bit to confidentiality and COVID and what's happening now? Because there's so much confusion and what you think is going to be happening moving forward. So even I am confused. And, and the reality is that right now we have the Department of Health and Human Services, who has, in some circumstances, refrained from enforcing certain HIPAA requirements. We have uh, the Illinois law, which was modified by an executive order of Governor Pritzker, that modified the locations where you can be to provide services. 
And I was a little confused as to whether that meant that the patient could be anywhere in the country or whether it's the therapist could be anywhere in the country. And that's my opinion at this point is that, uh, that if you're a therapist and you're hunkering down at your uh, cabin in the north woods of Wisconsin, you can provide services to your patients in Illinois because you are licensed to provide services in Illinois. And in my opinion, you it, because you are licensed in the state of Illinois, the patient receives services where they are located. You can do that. What you cannot do is provide services out of state unless you are licensed there. Now, I will also let you know that, that pursuant to the governor's uh, executive order, the insurance companies must reimburse you for telehealth the same as you would have in office. We don't know how long that is going to be. I think telehealth is with us forever now. It started with the VA, with the, the soldiers returning from the Middle East, when a lot of these soldiers were in, in uh, mental health deserts where they couldn't get services, and the only way they could get services was through telehealth. Uh, that's when it started. And then it, for a while, it was ad hoc when necessary. If you had an agoraphobic or you had someone who was 700 pounds and couldn't leave the house to get services, that you could do it remotely using video or audio. As long as you had a HIPAA compliant uh, mechanism to do that, a, a phone line that was HIPAA compliant, a video conferencing setup that was HIPAA compliant, uh, letting you know that now that they are reimbursing that, we don't know. As soon as it took a stroke of the pen from Governor Pritzker to create that exception, and it'll take a stroke of a pen for it to go away. And when it goes away, it will go away immediately. So make a plan. Uh, HIPAA, the Department of Health and Human Services, the state of Illinois, have both moratorium on, on enforcing the HIPAA-compliant communication software. Theoretically, you can use FaceTime, you can use Skype, you can use Zoom, you can use any one of these these uh, pr uh, these uh, non-HIPAA-compliant uh, mechanisms for uh, for therapy. Uh, there are a myriad of HIPAA-compliant resources out there. My advice is use them because get up to speed on them now. Use them now. There's no reason for you to use a non-HIPAA-compliant protocol. It's a little cheaper. I don't think they're all that expensive, but use a HIPAA-compliant protocol. Uh, right now, you don't have to use a HIPAA-compliant protocol, but that will go away in a snap, and you need to be up and running, and your patients need to be able to do that. You still should not be using emails for communication. You should not be using texting for communication of any personal health information. In my advice is just because there are some um, carved out exceptions for the pandemic, it, there is no reason why you can't maintain HIPAA compliance and Illinois Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act compliance. And if you have a problem that comes up, a confusion that you have, a communications issue, you can feel free to reach out to my office. Um, you can schedule an appointment if you're not a member of our consultation service. As you know, if you're a member of the consultation service, you call me on my cell phone and I answer the phone. If you call me at 11 o'clock at night and I'm not asleep, I answer the phone. And, it, and that's what it's all about, uh, being there when you have a question so that you don't have to worry about it. Um, I will let you know uh, that 
I have had situations where a mental health provider had a patient who was suicided and they um, needed support and they called three o'clock in the morning intending to leave a message and they got me and I answered the phone. Now, please don't call at three o'clock in the morning unless it really is an emergency because I'm the time, you know, I'm a dad with grown kids. So I answer the phone when, 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 uh, when it rings. It, so as far as maintaining HIPAA compliance with, with COVID, my advice is do it. There are some exceptions to it, but if you get used to exceptions, you will live your life as an exception. Exactly. There are lots of electronic medical records protocols that will allow you to be HIPAA compliant. There's hush mail, I understand, is HIPAA compliant. I don't, I don't sponsor anybody. But almost all of the, I think all of the electronic medical records entities that have a video conferencing ent- uh, element also have a portal where it'll send an email to the patient. The patient clicks on the link in the port, in the, excuse me, in the email. It'll then connect them to your website or to the electronic medical records website. And from there, you can communicate behind a firewall in a protected environment. Uh, email is not an, an appropriate protocol for communication. HIPAA says that if you notify the, the patient of the inherent insecurity of email that, and the patient insists on using that protocol, then you may use it. And that's what it says. And so that's what the law is. My advice is, is that don't uh, educate your clients. Let them know that this is a safe way to keep your records protected. It is not significantly more difficult. Uh, your protocol, your, your electronic medical record system will send an email to them saying you have an email from a professional uh, at the healthcare provider. And then you click on it and they use their own login and they be, then are then able to read your, their email and send it back to you all in a HIPAA compliant manner. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. And I have to tell you, your deductible for your insurance is much more expensive than 10 years of, uh, compliant emails. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right? That makes sense. Jonathan, I'm telling you that it's such smart advice that it's so easy right now for people to start getting a little lax. Uh, It's a really good reminder that we need to all stay in the good habits. It's like hygiene. You know, you don't just all of a sudden in the pandemic, I hope, stop brushing your teeth and glossing, right? You got to stay in the good habits. You need to make sure you're keeping up with compliance. So that's great advice. So is there anything else? Is there another final nugget you would like to share with people before we're done for today? And I would love to have you come back. Oh, I I would love to be invited. You know, 99% of the time, mental health providers know what's right. And so I get calls from people to say, I've been doing it this way for 30 years. Why do I have to do it different now? And sometimes when I when I am not as kind as I I always want to be, I respond with, well, you've been doing it wrong for 30 years, but this is the first time you got caught. Yep. So I understand that when you drive down the street and you roll through a stop sign or you roll through a traffic light when you make the right hand turn on red, that we all know that 
you've deviated from the requirements of the law. You all know that. And just because you didn't get caught the last 20 times doesn't mean you're not going to get caught this time. If you get caught rolling through the stop sign, you just get a ticket and it's, it's, it's inconvenient for you to go to court and it just costs money. If you take a shortcut as a mental health provider, then you can lose your license. Your patient can be, uh, be, be uh, irreparably harmed. My sister, Quote something to me. The, she's an obstetrician gynecologist. Very, she's eminent, and she said that that someone told her many years ago, "Always make the call." And I interpret that that if you're thinking, "Should I make the call? Should I call and get consultation? Should I call a lawyer and find out? Should I call the patient and make sure they're okay? Should I um, should I um, should I do something?" And the question is, should I? The answer is always going to be, I should. Because for the few minutes that you spend doing all those things, you will minimize your risks. And I would prefer to spend my time helping people stay out of trouble and help a lot of people making a little bit of money from each one than to have one or two or three get into a lot of trouble and make a lot of money from one or two or three. Well, we appreciate that. And Jonathan, I'll tell you, probably once a week, I'm telling one of our therapists, and we have 40, so at least once a week, something comes in. Right? I say, here's Jonathan Fibber. Call Jonathan. Frequently, they'll say, well, do you think it's that important? Is it a legal question? And call. Yes, I think it's that important. So again, better safe than sorry. Have you ever heard of any of your people hear me complain about their calls? Nope, never. I'd rather have them call. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, thank you, Jonathan from Nine Law Group for joining us today. I'm Dr. Margot Jacot, your mental health business mentor. Thank you for tuning in today. Please join us again soon. Jonathan, we'd love to have you back. Everyone be well. You've been listening to the Mental Health Business Mentor Podcast with Dr. Margot Jacot. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe so you don't miss an upcoming episode and head on over to the mentalhealthbusinessmentor.com website for resources and additional information. Thanks so much for listening and be well.